Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's turn our attention to the oil markets. We started the week with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility about Mideast and geopolitical tensions. Brent crude at one point earlier this week was at $71 and change. We've backed off pretty significantly from there as tensions have eased. Looking at Brent crude right now, $65.36 per barrel. Let's get a sense of kind of what's going on in the oil markets. We welcome John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital based in New York. So, John, what do you make of the volatility that we saw in the energy markets this week? Well, things were looking uh, you know, very bleak there on, uh, I guess, Wednesday night. Uh, with the Iranian attack, uh, you know, there was some misinformation around the market about potential uh, casualties, if not fatalities. And of course, you know, none of that came to pass. So that, that's why you got the spike up, because it was, you know, get yourself long some oil for protection as quickly as you can. And then it came off when our, our worst fears weren't realized, uh, thankfully. So um, the market has now shifted back to being more concerned about the relative oversupply in the market and a pretty weak uh, gasoline demand figure out of the U.S. Uh, in, in this week's report from the government. So um, back to more normal analysis for now. Yeah, uh, for now being the key word here, because I just should note there was a little uptick, uh, a little pairing of losses in the price of crude after the press conference held by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, as well as uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin announcing new sanctions on Iran, the possible re-escalation depending on how Iran responds. Is it telling that there has not been a bigger move, frankly, in oil throughout all of this, given the fact that there were actual missiles flying, right? I mean, it wasn't necessarily just a theoretical back and forth of words. Things were getting heated in another way. Things were getting very heated. And um, I think the, the, the oil price, Lisa, was off to the races the other night, um, to the upside, because it looked like there was going to be um, a, a real escalation. Um, and if Iran had gone further than it did, uh, then it, you have to figure that most likely there, there most certainly would have been. And finally, you know, real volumes of oil would have come off the market, particularly out of southern Iraq. That's uh, that's where my focus is. Uh, Iraq is proving to be the battleground uh, in this whole thing, unfortunately, for those poor people. And um, the Iraqi uh, crude oil out of Basra in the south, uh, a couple million barrels a day is, is, is the key element here. That gets affected. Prices are going to go uh, soaring higher. All right, John, let's assume, and this might not be a fair assumption, but let's assume geopolitical tensions remain muted here in the uh, near term to intermediate term. Where do you think oil goes here, given the supply and the demand uh, dynamics out there? There just seems to be a lot of supply out there. Yeah, I mean, ex-Iran, uh, you're looking at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a steady sell-off here now. Um, you know, we broke down through some key uh, levels. Uh, $60 was key support. We went through that like a hot knife through butter. The next key level is uh, just under $58 a barrel. That's the 200-day moving average. And if we can break through that, we, we could easily then go back uh, to the October lows, potentially uh, test $52 a barrel uh, once again. Uh, the, the technical mm -hmm. setup is such that um, it, the, the chart is, is a mess. It, it got pretty much wrecked by the uh, spike higher and then an and, and immediate reversal. So uh, there's a lot going against the bulls in the market right now. 
What about other possible disruptions? Forget Iran. I remember when we were talking about Libya being a source of concern. I remember uh, Venezuela production was a concern for a while, given the infrastructure in that country and what's going on there. All those things not on the horizon anymore? Well, the, the issue we have, the market has, is that even with the Iran and Venezuela pretty much offline, Iran is getting some crude oil out to China, by the way. Um, the there, there's still relative oversupply. The position of the United States, the ascendancy to the number one oil producer in the world, and now uh, a soaring amount of exports. We exported 4.6 million barrels a day uh, last uh, two weeks ago during that week. Uh, just an incredible figure. And um, as a result of that, you know, the, the, the market keeps getting a sufficient amount uh, of supply to the market, if not more than it needs. And there's still some cheating within the OPEC group, Nigeria in particular, and even with all the strife in Libya, their oil keeps getting out. So with all of these serial issues um, in the Middle East and now with Iraq and Iran and the attack on Saudi Arabia in the fall, the oil flows haven't been affected by any of these things. And the market remains relatively well supplied. So the market, the oil price um, is reflective of that. There's no tightness, no constraints, uh, just relative oversupply. So given that scenario and given, that, let's say, you know, a, a 2% kind of global GDP type of growth, where does WTI go? Does it drift down close back to 50? That's what it's looking like. The, the growth outlook for 2020 isn't really enough to, uh, to support uh, higher prices for sure. You know, maybe some stabilization if the Saudis were to decide to cut back more, but that is even in jeopardy, uh, particularly because Russia is is just is, is about to bolt uh, the, the agreement. It, it appears they 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 want to be allowed to uh, fight for market share, continue with uh, their investment capital plans that, that have been in place by their by their various uh, companies, um, and operate on a more commercial basis. So, um, yes, the short answer to your question is the. It's a downward bias, again, short of a supply disruption that comes from an exogenous event. I guess then the question becomes, John, how long before we start worrying about the financial health of shale producers, which have been the swing players here? Uh, we've seen them do really well in terms of bonds and stock prices in the wake of the increase in oil prices. How far do they have to drop before we have to worry about their financial viability again? Well, they're definitely on the ropes, and this is the year to watch them. Um, and it's also the year potentially where the the shale miracle uh, dries up to a degree, because the, as these weaker companies either go out of business uh, or merge or get picked up by the stronger players, including these, including the majors like Exxon Mobil, um, then a new round of production discipline could befall the industry and and that sector. Uh, where we would see a decline in, in U.S. production uh, and instead of the, the rampant and unbridled growth that uh, had sort of been the, the business model in that way. So um, that would also potentially help to stabilize prices down the road, but it's not going to be really uh, an impact on prices to the upside this year. Thank you so much for being with us. John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital, based in New York, talking about uh, the different factors that are pushing and pulling on the price of oil.
Bart Van Ark, Chief Economist at the Conference Board, joining us now. And you did this annual uh, global CEO survey. And among the points made here, attracting and retaining talent ranked as their top internal concern. If that's the case, why are wages not going up more? Yes. Hi. Good morning, Lisa. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's I think the conundrum here, right? I mean, we see this continuous slow wage growth, and at the same time, we see companies, uh, you know, complain about tenant. I, it's a very highly bifurcated labor market, right? I mean, on the one hand, you know, we see uh, CEOs and C-suite leaders in our conference board C-suite survey really put these issues of attracting and retaining talent, how to develop the next generation of leaders in order to move innovation forward, in order to make their companies more productive improve their performance. And on the other hand, there's just lots of uh, jobs and occupations out there where there's still plenty of supply in the labor market. We've seen pretty strong job growth uh, throughout uh, 2019 and in 2020. And there are people, there's still plenty of people being added to the labor market, so need for companies to uh, raise wages there. So, Bart, the labor market uh, remains strong, which can be a challenge for uh, corporations. What is the number one risk your survey uh, came back with here in terms of the CEO survey? Yeah, so this uh, C-suite survey uh, by the conference board was done in September, October last year. So at that time, I think there were big concerns about where the economy was was heading, also in the United States. Don't forget, we were in the middle of the trade disputes uh, at that point in time and potential threats of raising tariffs. So recession risk came up pretty consistently uh, among C-suite leaders as their biggest concern going into 2020. Now we're a few more months down the road. Uh, you know, we, we have a trade phase one deal coming along, we all hope, very, very soon. Uh, so you can see that has helped uh, um, um, uh, businesses to become a little bit more confident. Earlier this week, the conference board released its CEO confidence index, which is a quarterly index, and CEO confidence has been going down for about six quarters in a row. But in the last quarter, it actually began to pick up a little. It's still less than 50, so we still have more negative uh, CEOs than positive CEOs, but we're beginning to see a little bit of recovery of, of confidence. So in that sense, I think we may be hoping going into a slightly better uh, 2020 than 2019. So this recession risk has receded somewhat. Okay. So, and this is important, especially because as one of the points that that your survey found, U.S. CEOs uh, said that a recession was their number one concern in uh, in 2020, uh, and that had been their third uh, biggest concern back in 2019. I do want to go back to the labor issue and this idea of the bifurcation in the market where you have skilled uh, and sort of educated uh, workers who are in uh, you know in well demand and they're able to uh, demand their their salary as they as they will or have more bargaining power uh, versus the lower end can you talk a little bit more about what companies said the color they gave around the talent shortage that they face yeah, I, it, it's interesting to see where uh, these shortages are. And we see a lot of these shortages in sort of more blue-collar type workers. So manufacturing workers, engineers, uh, we, of course, know a lot about the stories about truck drivers and train drivers and so on. And these are all kind of jobs or occupations where basically people were told at the time, you know, don't even go there because, you know, it will be all automated and we have, you know, driverless trucks and everything else. It will all be robotized. 
And now here we are in 2020, and we're seeing that, you know, a lot of people in those occupations are older people who are now beginning to massively retire, and the technology hasn't really proceeded as rapidly. So now we suddenly have a shortage because there's too few young people coming into those kind of occupations. So what you see in this CEO survey is that people, that, that, that C-suite leaders are saying that, you know, things like uh, an innovative culture in that company, you know, um, dealing with these kind of disruptions of technology, they feature very high on the list of their concerns. So, so yeah. they are more aware than ever that they need to deal with this. I, I guess I, I'm really struggling with this, and I'm sorry that I'm basically asking the same question again. <laughs> but if this is not a training issue, why can't you find more people to hire by just offering more pay? Well, in a way, it is a training issue uh, in the sense that, you know, you, you get people out of school who don't have these skills yet in order to deal with those new technologies. So it's, it's just very hard to find people who companies are comfortable with that they can really sort of get them up to speed. So a lot of people with lower skills uh, can easily find jobs in the services sector of the economy, but these are those specific skills that need to be trained within a company environment uh, where there's a huge shortage of. So, so creating an innovation culture and creating a culture in which people can improve those skills, I think is one of the real shortcomings here. Bart Van Ark, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Bart Van Ark, Chief Economist for the Conference Board based in New York City, giving us his thoughts on the global CEO survey following up on this jobs data. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Alex Webb, covers all things European technology, joining us uh, from London. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. We're seeing in the home food delivery business some consolidation going on across the globe. It's actually coming to the U.S. as well. What's going on? So in Europe and in parts of Asia, we've really seen the number of um, online food delivery platforms uh, reduce. There's been a series of mergers. And in the UK, we've basically got three now. In, in South Korea, they have two and likely to go down essentially to one. And uh, Germany already has just one. Now, in the US, you've got four. You've got um, Grubhub, DoorDash, uh, Postmates and Uber Eats. And frankly, there is a, a lot of competition which is making life hard because they are all trying to out-discount each other. Now, uh, yesterday or day before yesterday, we had uh, the Wall Street Journal reporting that uh, Grubhub was evaluating its um, uh, strategic options, including a possible sale. And, uh, you know, that would really herald a, a big move that we've not yet seen in the States. We've seen a couple of smaller acquisitions where, you know, players with one, two, three, four percent market share have been gobbled up by one of the bigger guys. But the bigger guys themselves have largely um, for the past two, three years um, stayed in the situation they're in. I'm going to ask a really crazy question, Alex. I know this is going to be it's going to be a little mind blowing. Can this business make money? Personally, I think it's very hard to see how at least in the recent iterations of online food delivery. There are two business models here. The first one is that um, you are a, literally a platform in the truest sense. You, you are a website or an app which connects uh, the person trying the diner with the restaurant. Now, the restaurant then takes responsibility for delivering the food with their own couriers. The second one is what we've seen with Uber Eats in the US and DoorDash. And in Europe, in London, with companies like Deliveroo, those companies own the networks of couriers. And the first model, where it's purely a platform, is very profitable. They um, Grubhub was built around that model and has existed like that for 15 years. Yeah. It um, had EBITDA margins of more than 20%. 
the like the other guys owning their networks and couriers have never been profitable and the path to profitability isn't immediately clear uh, or it certainly isn't clear they're going to get there anytime inside the next two or three years I really, I just want to bring you some headlines uh, just crossing that the U.S. is set to impose sanctions on Iran's metal exports, as well as the nation's leaders. Uh, they are expecting to unveil these new sanctions today. We are expecting a press conference uh, with Mike Pompeo and Steven Mnuchin. So uh, they will be, uh, I expect, speaking more in detail about that. And we will bring that to you live, Paul, uh, when we get it. Exactly. Um, Alex, you mentioned kind of the Uber model, the Uber Eats models. Even, you know, among Uber investors, there's a lot of pressure to get out of that business. So, boy, and, and they have some huge scale. So that suggests that that model may never be profitable. It, it's certainly hard to see how. The, the guys in the space tend to um, make the argument that what is now a food delivery business becomes an every a delivery of everything, you know, that you are delivering tubes of toothpaste and groceries and food, uh, clothing. You know, Postmates has an agreement with Old Navy to deliver a fashion but you know volume doesn't necessarily account for profit unless of course you get to the stage where you're ordering televisions and you're, if you're taking a cut of that then it becomes a little bit more easy to um to you know to, to justify the expense but you know is a guy on a scooter going to be delivering a television probably not um the thing the the kind of sticking point with grubhub potentially being up for sale the most ideal or the ideal combination would be with one of uber eats or doordash and the problem with that is that the biggest investor in both of those companies, Uber Eats and DoorDash, is SoftBank. And as we've seen with SoftBank around the world, they prefer to have their portfolio companies combined with each other. And I could imagine a scenario where um, DoorDash and Uber Eats, perhaps Uber carves out the Eats business and lumps it in with DoorDash. Then you've got three competitors in the space. SoftBank is only backing one of them. So Masterson, um, the head of that business, is, is very happy. And um, it leaves DoorDash, with, uh, sorry, it leaves Grubhub with a, a greater competitive threat. Just to be clear of what the news is, Grubhub uh, was reported by the Wall Street Journal and New York Post on Wednesday uh, that it was considering a potential sale. Grubhub has come out and said unequivocally it is not running a sale process, so denying those allegations and those reports. Uh, still, though, there is a question about profitability. And ultimately, you know, people talk about the Ubers of the world and they say, well, if there's enough consolidation among some of these ride sharing and, and these is, uh, driving services, that they will be able to jack up prices. And that's the big question with these delivery services, right? What kind of pricing power do they have, even if they have the entire market? Because people can do the alternative, which is go out their front door and go get their food themselves. <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's the huge question that, you know, if um, if the answer is you only have one competitor in a given market and by a market, I mean the city of New York or the city of Chicago or London, um, and you can womp up the prices. Well, I think right now, you know, one of the reasons people use this stuff is because it's cheap. And the reason it's cheap is because they're competing against each other. And so th therefore, they're subsidizing the costs. And yeah, to your point, the moment that it becomes less affordable than just cooking at home, are people going to try to do it as we've uh, sorry, going to continue to do it? And, uh, you know, people are pretty fickle. Um, you know, brand loyalty in things like ride hailing or food delivery platforms isn't great. And um, the moment that a cheaper product comes along, they switch to it. The one th caveat I would also raise to that statement today from Grubhub, the report on Wednesday didn't say they were running a sales process. It said they were evaluating strategic options. So I, I don't think it it leaves them some wiggle room. In some ways, it, it kind of looks like a, a non-denial denial. They're denying something which wasn't quite reported. There isn't. It wasn't reported there's a sales process. It's re it was reported that that is something they might be considering. So, Alex, are there? I know you've looked at this space holistically. Are there any markets out there, any countries, or any companies that are doing kind of 
the platform where they're actually are delivering the food on a profitable basis? Yes. I mean, in Germany, uh, Takeaway.com, which is in fact a Dutch company, um, Takeaway.com essentially has a monopoly there. Um, they uh, had 93% market share, which prompted the only other player in the space, Deliveroo, to leave. They have a, a sort of hybrid model where maybe 20% of their deliveries um, are you know, serviced by their own couriers um, and the rest, uh, the restaurants uh, deliver themselves. And so they are able to be very profitable. They have literally in the past hour secured um, the shareholder approval to buy Just Eat in the UK, which has a similar business model for a figure of about £6 billion. In the UK, it's a bit different because, of course, there's also competition from um, Uber Eats and Deliveroo. But in Germany, you know, huge market, uh, a lot of growth potential still, and they don't have that that competition from the the owned courier model. So they have the ability to jack up prices to the extent they think it's possible, but also eke out some hep, um, some you know generous profit margins because they're not having to account for the cost of the couriers. We're talking with Alex Webb, a European technology columnist over in London uh, for Bloomberg Opinion. And one of the reasons why this particular area, this industry has been so interesting is because of how hot it's gotten uh, in terms of the money poured yes. into it. DoorDash is planning an initial public offering for this year. Uh, we shall see whether they will be able to pull it <laughs> off, especially without proven profitability or, or a path to profitability. Alex, I just want to wrap this up and put a bow around it. You mentioned SoftBank and how they own a bunch of these companies, how much has SoftBank single-handedly inflated the valuations of the entire business model here of uh, of delivering food? I mean, significantly so. Look, Grubhub was the dominant player back in 2016, 2017, had more than 50% market share. Um, SoftBank started pouring money into DoorDash and then Uber, which was SoftBank backed, started expanding um, its Uber Eats offering. And needless to say, now we see DoorDash as the biggest player in the US with something like 37% market share compared to Grubhub's 30%. And that is all down to the fact that um, it is burning through cash to provide food at an affordable rate to end customers. The best estimates from last year, I think the information reported that uh, uh, DoorDash was set to make a 450 Fifty million dollar loss on revenue of only about a billion dollars. So, you know, if it didn't have um, cash from not just SoftBank in their case, there's Sequoia Capital in there as well. But certainly from venture, if they didn't have venture funds in there, then they they would not be gobbling up that market share and and reforming, reshaping the landscape. Gobbling up the market share, if you will. Alex yeah, Webb, sorry, nicely yeah. done there. European technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us from London. Thank you so much. You can find all his columns and all uh, Bloomberg Opinion columns at OPIN Go on the Bloomberg, bloomberg.com slash opinion. Well, there was another M&A deal in the healthcare space today. Uh, Eli Lilly buying Dermira, a maker of treatments for skin conditions, for $1.1 billion. Shares of Dermira are up 5.8% today. Stock is up 160% over the trailing 12 months. Help us walk through the deal. We welcome Patrick Johnson, Senior Vice President and President of Lilly Biomedicines. Uh, it's based in Indianapolis. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, a pretty interesting deal for Lilly. Tell us about why you're buying Dermira. Well, thank you very much and good morning. Yes, this is truly an interesting day for both uh, Lily, Darmaira, and for patients suffering from atopic dermatitis. 
Uh, first and foremost, we believe this is a very good fit with uh, the commitment that we have to immunology and particularly dermatology. As you know, Dermira is a biopharmaceutical company that is dedicated to uh, chronic, finding medicines to chronic skin conditions. And uh, based upon the phase two data of Librikizumab, we really believe that this is potentially a best-in-class medicine for treatment of atopic dermatitis. I have to wonder how much this also emphasizes the role of uh, aesthetic uh, treatments and sort of how popular they have been and how much of a driver they've been in profitability for the pharmaceutical in uh, industry, while other sort of drugs have moved toward generics and sort of requirements and been more regulated and uh, less profitable. How much does that play in? Well, I think first and most importantly, uh, this is an area of huge unmet medical need still. If we look upon the field of atomic, atopic dermatitis, it's currently estimated that 18 million Americans are suffering from atopic dermatitis. Out of those, 10 million are suffering from moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And many people say that this field, there has been not a, any significant development, and we are today with atopic dermatitis where we were in the field of psoriasis 15 years ago. So I think my response would be, we as a research and development-based company with more than 150 years of independence, whenever we do what's right for people, we will also do right for business. So Patrick, I know that Sanofi also has a product in the market, uh, Dupixent, I think is the name of that. Is this a head-on competitor to that? Well, we are really, really... Uh, uh, excited with the phase two data from, from Librikizumab. And what we saw was a very good efficacy on skin, but not only efficacy on skin. Most importantly, we saw uh, an opportunity to differentiate positively also on itching. And itching is for those that are suffering from atopic dermatitis, a very bothersome symptoms. It uh, has a significant impact on sleep and a significant impact on quality of life. So therefore, we, we believe that we might have a medicine here that can bring a lot of hope to those that are not uh, fully, fully getting the, the needs met with the current available treatments. But overall, I think in this very important uh, field, it's important to have many different medicines available and for the healthcare providers and for the patients to have several opportunities. Patrick, uh, to your point about several medications available, uh, certainly for the patients, it's helpful to figure out what works best for them. For the pharmaceutical companies themselves, it's helpful to rely on a number of different uh, drugs in order to diversify income streams. Are you hoping to develop uh, more, uh, more drugs through R&D? Are you looking toward more acquisitions? What's the game plan going forward? Well, we have made it very clear that we, we believe in, in organic uh, development and uh, research and development based out of, our, of, of our own laboratories. But we will also augment those efforts whenever we see any opportunities in those core disease areas where we have made a commitment. And Armida was such a perfect fit because they share the commitment to immunology and particularly chronic skin conditions as we do. So we will always look for opportunities to augment our internal R&D efforts with uh, external business development. Patrick, I see the uh, stock price uh, above your offer price of 1875. The stock's trading at $19.40. Do you expect a counterbid? 
we strongly believe that we have been providing a, both a full and a fair value of, of Darmira, and we have thoroughly assessed this. And I think it's important to go back and also look at the uh, 60 days volume weighted average stock price. And you can see that there is a, a premium of close to 90% versus that price. So again, we really believe that this represents the full and the fair value of Darmira. Just looking forward uh, to 2020, a lot of people talk about the biopharmaceutical industry as being uh, very much in focus as we head into the 2020 elections. How are you sort of prepared to handle that? What kinds of questions have you gotten from investors? Well, I think we have made it very clear that uh, we are focusing on on unmet medical needs and uh, we made the commitment to bring 20 new innovative medicines to uh, to people across the globe starting in 2014. We are more than halfway through. And I think as long as we're making that bet on innovation in areas of unmet medical needs, the investors have been reacting very positively. But most importantly, it brings a lot of hope and value to the patients we serve. Hey, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. I know it's a busy day for you, uh, given your acquisition today of Delmyra for $1.1 billion. Patrick Johnson, Senior Vice President and President of Lilly Biomedicines uh, for the Eli Lilly Company based in Indianapolis. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you.